Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this summer, the Town Board of Nederland passed a resolution recognizing the rights of the nearby Boulder Creek watershed. We're actually trying to change the hearts and minds so that we could think about nature differently. On today's show, we hear more about that resolution. And in light of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, we take a look back at an early chapter of Colorado's Jewish history. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Labor Day is a celebration of American workers. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the holiday is rooted in the late 19th century when labor activists pushed for a federal holiday to recognize the contributions workers have made to the country's prosperity and well-being. With that in mind, it's also a good time to recognize the contributions of the humble worker bee. While not a worker in the traditional human sense, bees and other pollinators are essential to our way of life. But bees are dying worldwide due to pesticide use, disease, and loss of habitat, which is putting our food supply at risk. One company is looking to help save these vital pollinators by helping them form healthier colonies. And surprisingly, that's happening more often in cities like Denver. Franny Halperin of H2O Radio has more. If you stroll the streets of downtown Denver in the spring and summer, you're bound to see bees buzzing around the city's plentiful parks and planting beds. What you might be surprised to learn is that a growing number of those pollinators don't live close to the ground. Far from it. We're going to the 23rd floor, and then we're going to be heading up the stairwell to the 24th floor with a roof access. I'm on an elevator at 1700 Broadway, an iconic Denver high-rise designed by the world-famous architect I.M. Pei. With me is Gina Garasio of Beacon Capital Partners, which owns the building. She's taking me to meet one of their loftier tenants. Wow, what a view. Yeah, right? And it's a beautiful Denver day, so let's see what our bees are doing. Stepping onto the roof affords spectacular views, west to the Rocky Mountains and east to the Great Plains, and the last place you'd expect to find beehives. They look pretty happy. How can you tell? Look how active they are. Can't you see their smiles? <laughs> the three boxes, which look like wooden filing cabinets, are owned by Best Bees, a company that installs and manages hives for residential and commercial customers. Clients like Beacon are putting hives on their properties, whether office buildings, hotels, or corporate campuses, to support sustainability goals and meet demands from investors around environmental stewardship. Hosting pollinators might be good for a company's bottom line, but according to research, it's also good for bees. They're thriving in cities more than in rural or suburban areas. It's so counterintuitive. And really, we're now able to compare habitats from skyscraper rooftops um, to suburban uh, gardens and decks, all the way out to rural farms and pastures and forests. That's Noah Wilson-Rich, one of the founders of Best Bees. Since launching the company in 2010 and installing hives in 14 cities coast to coast, 
he's started to see a trend. This one beehive made 128 pounds of honey in one year, and that is like way high. We couldn't help but notice that the beehives in urban areas were making way more honey than the beehives in the countryside. And living longer. Part of the reason, he says, is plant diversity. Like us, bees are healthier on a varied diet, and urban areas tend to have more diverse landscapes than suburbs, where there are lots of lawns which bees don't like. And in rural areas, there are often monocultures where only one crop is being grown and pesticides can be in use. Bespies wants to improve pollinator health in all these locations, and so their hives double as research tools, using data that happens to be sweet and edible. So we collect samples of honey. We call this project Honey DNA. We look at the plant DNA genome within samples of honey to measure how many different plants are in there. And so we found eight times more plant diversity in urban areas compared to their nearby suburbs. Specifically in Boston, 411 different plants in one little taste, one teaspoon of honey, 411 flavors compared to 52 different plants in Duxbury, which is south of Boston. Honey is a great forensic tool because it never goes bad. A CSI beehive where you can piece together a crime scene. In this case, solving the mystery of where the bees grabbed their pollen and nectar. And it's called genomics. It's just like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA. And so now it's just applied to plants for the first time. Starting this September, the data they're collecting will be available to the public. Along with their nonprofit Urban Beekeeping Laboratory, Best Bees will launch their Honey DNA website, where clicking on a map location will show the top five plants bees are visiting in an area so gardeners can add them to their yards to support pollinators. The project is a partnership with NASA and Google Earth, which overlaid hive data on satellite maps to locate so-called blue zones, places where bees are thriving, like near that downtown Denver high-rise. Noah is not surprised bees like skyscrapers. Working with MIT, they recently sent bees into space. We wanted to understand how bees are, can be the most resilient and also if it would be possible to have bees travel and up into space and then rear a whole hive from them. The bees flew on the same Blue Origin rocket that Jeff Bezos took a year later and happily returned to MIT even if his trip got a lot more buzz. For H2O Radio, I'm Franny Halperin. Back in July, the Nederland Town Board agreed to recognize the rights of a body of water. The so-called Rights of Nature Resolution was the first of its kind in Colorado. But despite this recognition, the resolution isn't an ordinance, meaning it's not necessarily enforceable. Instead, supporters of the measure say the softer, resolution-based approach could allow for fewer legal battles and more neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor conversations. To learn more about it, we reached out to Gary Wachner, director of Save the Colorado, a nonprofit devoted to protecting the Colorado River and its tributaries. He spoke with Colorado Editions' Henry Zimmerman. 
So first up, the rights of nature, likely unfamiliar to many of our listeners. Let's start there. What rights does nature have? Well, in American law, nature actually has very few rights. We've created a legal system that uh, is centered around people. You would call that anthropocentric, whereas a legal system that would be centered around uh, all the critters that we share the planet with and the country with would be ecocentric. And so the concept of rights of nature has been around for thousands of years because it's it's been practiced and still practiced in some indigenous cultures, but it's relatively new um, in the United States in the last 30 or 40 years and gaining steam a lot in the last five years, especially. Rights of nature um, looks at the non-human world. So trees, wildlife, water, rivers, those kinds of things and, and considers the concept of do they have rights? And this originally um, got started in a, in a larger way in the United States because there was a, an actual Supreme Court case around should trees have standing? And there was a um, justice at the time named William O. Douglas on the U.S. Supreme Court. And he wrote a relatively famous uh, dissenting opinion uh, arguing that trees should have standing and they should be able to go into court themselves and file lawsuits. And so um, that's the general concept is that, um, you know, the American legal system is, is all around people. Now, fascinatingly, it's changed recently because corporations also have standing and corporations are treated as people in the American legal system and also in the American political system. Whereas nature in the non-human world uh, really has no voice unless we uh, specifically create laws and create opportunities for it to do so. And so the rights of nature movement is a um, somewhat philosophical, but also somewhat illegal and just kind of a, you know, a cultural movement to start recognizing that we share this world with a vast number of, of creatures and uh, ecosystem processes. And we need to f do that much better than we're doing it right now. One thing I'm curious about uh, with this whole, you know, anthropocentric versus ecocentric stuff, all of the systems you're describing, all of our governance and laws and debates, resolutions, what have you, that's all in English and safe to say that nature doesn't speak English uh, and can't communicate with us. So in the context of our language-based system of government, how can nature defend its rights? Yeah, great question. And it's even more than that, uh, you know, our, our legal, political, economic system is all about people and for people and, and benefits to people. And so in order to give nature standing, we have to, first of all, say that nature has some standing and sort of put them in our context as they're like, you know, somewhat equal as a person. But then what rights of nature uh, laws and ordinances and resolutions like the one that passed in Netherland um, do is give local governments, in this case, the opportunity to appoint a guardian so an actual person who's chosen or, or persons who are chosen to be the guardians for the uh, non-human world, in this case, it'd be Boulder Creek Watershed and Netherland. Um, and those guardians are able to um, come to the town board and then speak on behalf of nature. And the concept of guardianship, again, does have precedence in uh, U.S. legal law because we create guardians for uh, people who are underage. We create guardians for people who don't have the mental capacity to represent themselves. And so the concept of creating a guardian for uh, a river or wildlife or a tree in the legal system 
Uh, it's based on that concept of you know giving rights so that people can actually come forward and speak for those non-human entities. Well, on the note of Nederland and the town board passing this resolution, recognizing the rights of nature for Boulder Creek, that's a pretty big move for a community to kind of make a resolution like that. As we noted, it was kind of the first of its kind in Colorado. What do you think this signifies about the time we're in as it relates to these kind of nature rights issues? Well, the the rights of nature movement has been increasing across the planet the last five years, especially. Um, There's been a few governments that have recognized rights of nature. There's been several rivers that have been recognized, including the Ganges River in India and the Wanganui River in New Zealand. The Wanganui is actually was sort of the famously the first river on the planet that got what we call personhood. And so, um, you know, the, the concept here is that we would give some legal standing and rights to Boulder Creek and the watershed, um, and then people could come before the town board uh, and speak on behalf of the creek and watershed. There, it has happened in other communities where they passed ordinances and then those kind of relatively quickly turned into court battles. And because this, this isn't an ordinance, there's nothing that anybody can do or say to you know, challenge it in court, at least. Uh, so we're, we're hoping it actually starts a friendly community conversation about the role of nature and decision-making in, in Netherlands and in the watershed in Netherlands. This creates an opportunity for any person in the community to come before the town board and speak on behalf of nature. And it, and it also creates the opportunity for the Netherlands town board itself to appoint guardians whose actual role it is to come before them and speak on behalf of nature and the watershed. Gary, I'm curious what you see as sort of the challenges in helping this idea propagate in a way that's meaningful? You know, the challenges are that this takes time. We're not necessarily trying to change law or create laws that people can then just go to court. We're actually trying to change the hearts and minds so that we could think about nature differently. And so when we do something, we say, well, what would the river say if we were able to ask it about the concept of, you know, this pollution that's being poured into it or that it's... um, wetlands alongside of her being dried up or they got a dam built on it or something like that. What would the river say? And so um, we're taking our time here and we see a process that we're going to try to help play out over the next five to 10 years uh, in the Colorado River Basin, especially Colorado and Utah, which is where we've had the conversations right now, so that people can start to get their mind around this concept. And it doesn't just immediately go into kind of a contentious, litigious a place where it becomes, you know, extremely controversial. Gary Walkner is the director of Save the Colorado, a nonprofit that works to protect the Colorado River. Gary, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Henry. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Monday evening at sunset marks the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, and as people of the Jewish faith gather to celebrate the start of the new year, we wanted to take a moment to look back at our state's Jewish history. While coastal cities like New York and Los Angeles are often associated with large Jewish populations, Denver is actually one of the few cities in the U.S. that had a strong Jewish presence since its founding. In 1882, a group of Jewish immigrants fleeing persecution in Russia came to Colorado to start a farming colony in the small mining town of Cotopaxi. 
and while raising crops at 6,000 feet of elevation ultimately proved to be fruitless, these settlers were successful in putting down Jewish roots in the American West. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber has the story. Cotopaxi, Colorado. It's an unincorporated town about 25 miles southeast of Salida. Spanning 183 acres with a population of about 47, this small community in the upper Arkansas River Valley has a general store, a gas station, and not much else. But nearly 140 years ago, Cotopaxi wasn't a rest stop, but a destination for 63 Russian Jewish immigrants seeking a new life in the Wild West. In 1882, following the assassination of the Tsar, and Jews were widely blamed for this encouraging kind of revolutionary anti-Tsarist sentiment in Russia, there were a lot of anti-Semitic attacks called pogroms. Adam Rovner is an associate professor of English at the University of Denver. He's researched and written about the Cotopaxi colony. And so given this kind of repression and violence, Jews start immigrating to the United States in massive numbers. In about 1880, there were only about 250,000 Jews in the United States. Dr. Jean Abrams is also a University of Denver professor. She helped to make a film about Cotopaxi a few years back. The Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society was trying to relieve some of the congestion in the big urban centers by um, sending people across the country. But in order to get across the country, these Jewish immigrants needed a sponsor. There was this gentleman by the name of Emmanuel Saltiel. He was British. He was a Sephardic Jew, so he found his way from England to the United States. He may or may not have been part of the Union Army prior to becoming part of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He was captured, he was imprisoned, and he volunteered to serve the Union, and this freed him from prison, and that's how he made his way down to southern Colorado, where he became a part owner of this uh, zinc mine. Saltiel was able to convince the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. He asked that he had some promising land available for immigrants. And he's got this philanthropic project to resettle poor Jews out in the Wild West. But once they got to Cotopaxi, the settlers were not exactly met with the new houses and fertile land they had been promised. It was very challenging. Basically, tar paper shacks and not enough of them. There was a water shortage. Wasn't enough charcoal to cook with, wasn't enough wood to stay warm with. Most of the land was not really arable. You have soil that's rough and dry and rocky. This is not a place where you can really reap a lot of crops. But despite the challenges, the settlers still found ways to hold on to their Jewish heritage. Their religious life thrived, and I think it's really telling that before they even sent to, he asked for farm implements, they asked for a Torah scroll. They built their own rudimentary synagogue, but when they brought that Torah scroll in, it was with great joy and a great celebration. Still, they had to make money. And since the land wasn't ripe for farming, their options were limited. They were reduced to working for Saltiel in his mines. Saltiel also had this company store, and the people had no money, the immigrants, so they were indebted to the company store. They were essentially kind of like indentured servants. After two years of living in harrowing conditions, by June of 1884, 139 years ago this month, the Cotopaxi colony formally dissolved. 
the Jewish immigrants mainly resettled in Denver and other nearby cities. And as for Emanuel Saltiel, he died penniless in an unmarked grave in Wyoming. His legacy largely vilified. I believe that he had a sincere desire to help out these miserable people, these, his Jewish brethren. But on the other hand, he was probably misguided at the very least. If he wasn't an out criminal, he was certainly a little bit of a con. The story of Saltiel has kind of got a second life because of a distant relative of his, Miles Saltiel. You can call me Miles. Miles is good. Miles Saltiel. He's a former investment banker, born and raised in England, and stumbled across the story of Cotopaxi completely by coincidence. During the summer of 1970, he was on a U.S. road trip when he stopped at a diner in Walsenburg, Colorado. And one of my traveling companions said to me, hey, Miles, your name comes up in this story in the Pueblo Star Journal. And there was the story about a namesake, Emmanuel Saltiel. The road trip came to an end. I went back to Great Britain. and I asked in my family, how is this bloke related to me? In fact, the bloke was related to him, although very distantly. After some genealogical research, Miles discovered that the branches of their family tree separated in the 1700s. But when Miles returned to Colorado in the 90s to help with a film on Cotopaxi, he was bothered by his ancestors' depiction. That was a pretty uncomfortable experience for me. I mean, not only was it the Colorado winter, which is not a lot of fun, but I was drawn into the company of people who just basically regarded Emmanuel Saltiel as a bad hat. And I didn't have any real basis to challenge it. And I also felt, as I say, that there were holes in the story. It's not that Miles believed Emmanuel was some kind of hero, but he did think there wasn't enough evidence to decisively condemn him. So he confronted this Wild West problem with a Wild West solution. Oh, the bounties. That's right, bounties. Bounties for historical documents. For example, people spoke of a petition against Saltiel. Now, Saltiel himself refers to this petition, a false defaming petition, he says. I'd like to see that petition. I'd like to see what these guys were complaining about. But despite putting up bounties in 2015 for a total of $25,000, no one came forward. Nobody's got in touch with me. Nobody at all. And I think if there was something that might have been there, it should have happened by now. On the other hand, it's a few years later. Let's try again. Hey, gang, the bounties are there. As long as these documents are missing and the bounties are out, Saltiel's legacy is bound to be contested. But regardless, there is one thing that pretty much everyone can agree upon. The Cotopaxi colony was so much more than a farming failure. So I like to look at Cotopaxi ultimately as a success story. They were certainly challenged in Cotopaxi in terms of the physical circumstances and the harsh winters. But what it did do was help really hone their leadership skills and their survival skills. So most of them did indeed stay in Colorado, and many of them went on to become successful leaders. In fact, out of the 63 original settlers, only two left the state. Former colonist Ed Grimes helped establish Congregation Zara Abraham in Denver, which still exists today. Ira and Simon Quiet, whose father Philip survived Cotopaxi, became influential lawyers and political figures. And you might recognize the name Itzig Shames, 
whose descendants went on to found James Makovsky, one of the premier real estate developers in the state. Denver was founded in 1864 on the back of a gold rush. The Jewish community was here from the beginning of that city. There's probably not a city in the United States that from its founding had such an impact made by Jewish Americans and Jewish immigrant Americans. But a lot of people don't realize that because Colorado is not perceived as being a center for Jewish history. But it really is. And when it comes to acknowledging the true significance of the colony, even Miles agrees. There was a period when it was a bit of a stone in my shoe. I, I felt, you know, poor old Emmanuel, he wasn't getting a fair crack of a whip. If there's something I could do to help the poor old chap out, I'd like to do that. But I absolutely don't want to take away from the heroism of the colonists on that plateau. That's the pioneering story, and it's a great story. And what their descendants have made of their lives is what one hopes for out of the American dream. But if you happen to have one of the Cotopaxi historical documents, you know who to call, because you might just collect a bounty. I'm Alana Schreiber. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we begin a series examining how fentanyl, a drug up to 100 times more powerful than morphine, is impacting the Mountain West. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 